We are reading out of the 21st chapter of Matthew, starting in verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them. And he went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Stephen. So I feel a lot safer down here on the floor. I'll just let you know. Anybody knows my history here. (laughs) Good morning. My name is Janet Russell, and I'm the pastor of Christian Formation and Community Life, which means that I oversee things that hopefully are going to help you keep growing in Jesus. So today is the first Sunday of Lent, and this morning we're starting something special. We're going to begin a journey together called A Journey to the Cross. Now that may not sound like a whole lot of fun, but as we follow Christ together, hopefully we're going to come to know Jesus better and we're going to see him doing a deep work in our lives and in this church. I'm excited for this. We're going to be diving into the Gospel of Matthew And we're going to be looking at the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus was resolute on his journey to the cross. He was resolute as he went to Jerusalem, as he went to Golgotha. Each step, each step he knew was a journey to that cross. And each step was a step of sacrifice and love for us So this is where we're going to live in our sermons for the next six weeks. And during our life together from 11 to noon, if you hadn't figured it out yet, our Lent groups are an opportunity to reflect more deeply on the same scriptures that we're preaching from, but also expanded on a lengthier section of scripture that we can't address fully in the sermons. So last plug, if you're not in a Lent group, you can join one at the kiosk after the service. Even our art wall, that rounded wall in the foyer as you come into the sanctuary, that's going to also each week have a piece that is from the same scripture text as the sermon. So watch it as it grows through the weeks. There'll be one added each week. So we have multiple opportunities for God to do his work here among us. So let's pray. Lord, may we be leaning forward, anticipating your presence and your power moving among us 
as we encounter you in your word. Soften our hearts to be willing to walk with you on this journey, to allow you to do your good work in us and among us. Amen. So, Jesus turned the tables upside down in the temple, but he upended a lot more than just tables that day. And to really understand how extraordinary what he did was, we need to first look at a story in the Old Testament. So when David became the king of Israel, he decided he wanted Jerusalem, which was then called Jabus, and he wanted it to be his royal city, his national capital. Now this was a strategic decision because Jerusalem sat between two very important regions of Israel, but it was also easily defended because it sat on top of a mountain surrounded on three sides by deep valleys. And the only problem was that Jerusalem, Jabus, was already inhabited by the Jebusites, and they were not inclined to give up their prime real estate. So when King David and his men came up to attack the city, the Jebusites taunted them and said, you might as well go home. You won't get in here. Even the blind and the lame can keep you out. They were so sure that there was no way that David could take that city that they thought they could leave only the blind and the lame on guard. Well, of course, David succeeded in capturing the city They attacked through a tunnel where the city got its water, and Jerusalem became known as the city of David. But afterward, David said that the blind and the lame would not be allowed. He didn't want any reminders of his enemies' disdainful mocking. So, about a thousand years later, In the time of Jesus, the lame and the blind were still not allowed in the temple. And now, we're going to really begin with our text in the middle of the passage at verse 14, where it says, The blind and the lame came to him, that's Jesus, at the temple, and he healed them. The blind and the lame weren't allowed in the temple, And this is the only time that we hear of Jesus healing in the temple. The people that were kept out were now welcomed in and healed. And then there's the children shouting in the temple courts. Can you imagine the kids all running back through here? Hosanna to the son of David! Hosanna! Maybe the kids had been just part of the crowd at the triumphal entry and wanted to keep the party going, but it's doubtful that children shouting in the temple courts was a regular thing. And they were proclaiming praise to Jesus. Jesus, the son of David, the long-awaited Messiah, who would bring in a new reign, a new kingdom. And the Jewish leaders are furious blind and lame, healed in the temple, unruly children praising Jesus in the temple. The children saw what these great religious leaders could not understand. The children's hearts were open and responsive. 
and the religious leaders were defensive and stubborn and not ready to acknowledge the new reality that was right in front of them. And then Jesus left. He left the Jewish leaders. He left the temple. He left the place where the glory of God was meant to dwell. The son of David left the city of David. And to understand why this is so striking, now we're going to look at the, the events that bookends this incident. So just before this, Jesus came into the city with the welcome of a king. Cloaks were draped along the road. Palm leaves were swaying. The crowds are shouting blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And he came riding a donkey, an animal of peace, not a war horse. But he came with all the pomp and festivity of a king returning home in triumph. But he didn't go to the palace. He wasn't a political king. He went to the temple. R.T. France wrote, the Messiah stakes his claim in the central shrine of the people. He shows his power and his authority. Those that were there to sell the sacrifices to the Passover pilgrims, those that were there to change their money to buy their doves, they were astounded when Jesus comes through and upends the tables and benches and drives them out of the temple area. And Jesus cries out, My house will be called a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of robbers. Now, they were in the courtyard of the Gentiles, the only area of the temple where the Gentiles were allowed. And they had created such a cacophony of noise and commerce and corruption. In the only place of the temple where the Gentiles could encounter and worship God. It had become a den of robbers. Every Jew had to pay a temple tax of a half shekel, and it had to be paid in a certain currency, the Tyrian coin. And there's little doubt that those that changed the pilgrims' money to the temple money made a fine profit on the deal. And certainly, you could bring your animals from home to come and sacrifice, but they needed to be officially inspected. They had to be unblemished. And unsurprisingly, few were considered quite good enough. And oh well, if the doves that you bought here at the temple that you needed to sacrifice, if they cost oh, 15 times or more what you might spend back home, exploitation of the pilgrims coming to worship was rampant. And Jesus comes into the temple and he sees the corruption and he sees the impediments. He sees even the impossibility of true worship and prayer. So over the tables go and out go the buyers and sellers. And then he welcomes in the blind and the lame and heals them. And he welcomes in the unruly children and delights in their praise. And the religious leaders are 
indignant and angry. And Jesus leaves them, and he leaves the temple. And because there's so many people that come for these Passover festivities, Jesus and his disciples, like many, many others, have to leave the city for the night. And the next morning, on his way back into the city, Jesus is hungry. (laughs) And he sees a fig tree by the road. And he goes up to it to see if there's any fruit. But he finds nothing but leaves on the tree. And it doesn't even have that bitter, immature fruit that comes early that the poor peasants would eat. There was nothing that even gave hope for a harvest of good fruit later. And Jesus says to the tree, May you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withers. At first blush, it might seem that Jesus is just being petty and vindictive. It wasn't even the normal season of the year where you'd find healthy, mature fruit. Why curse it? But the fig tree is a symbol of of Israel in the Old Testament. And Jesus looks for fruit, and the leaves gave the appearance that there was life in that tree, but there was no fruit. And just like the temple, there's appearance of religiosity. There's services and priests and sacrifices, but there's no fruit. There's no prayer. There's no true worship. In fact, what they were doing was impeding worship. And not only were they robbing the pilgrims, they're robbing God of the honor and glory that he deserved. For the Jewish leaders, it was business as usual. The priests working alongside the crooked bankers and shopkeepers with no compassion for the Gentiles longing for God, no concern for the blind and the lame, no welcome for the children or their praising of this king and Messiah in their midst. And Jesus leaves the temple and he curses the fig tree. He came looking for fruit, found only leaves, and he judged. And barrenness was punished with barrenness. So, we now, believers of Jesus Christ, we are God's temple. We are the place where God's spirit and his glory dwells. We are his house of prayer. We are God's people now. The ones that are called to reveal him to the nations. The ones who are called to be a light to the Gentiles. To welcome the blind and the lame. And the children. And the marginalized. And the outcast. Would Jesus come into his temple today and find the fruit that he longs for? Would Jesus come into his temple today and find the fruit that he longs for? Mahatma Gandhi was born into a Hindu family, but in his early days, when he was in South Africa, he was curious about Christianity, and he went to a few Christian services but this was his observation. The congregation did not strike me as being particularly religious. They were not an assembly of devout souls, 
but appeared rather to be worldly-minded people going to church for recreation in conformity to custom. Worldly-minded people going to church for recreation and in conformity to custom. He concluded there was nothing very special about Christianity, and he turned away from Christ. And I hope that is painful to hear. But the reality is that we cannot do this on our own. We cannot reveal Christ. We cannot love as he loves on our own. We can only do it because Jesus Christ came and he took that journey to the cross for us. He took our selfishness and our brokenness and our woundedness upon himself. And we can only do it because he has cleansed us and healed us and anointed us and filled us with his spirit. But... We can't keep doing life as usual, living among the corrupt shopkeepers, doing our religious gig, showing lots of leaves, but not bearing any real fruit. Hosea was a prophet in the Old Testament whose relationship with his wife depicted the relationship between God and Israel. Now, his wife, Gomer, was a woman who, shall we say, liked to get around She was not content with just her husband, Hosea, and she was easily seduced by the pleasures and the gifts of her many lovers. But even in the midst of Gomer's unfaithfulness and adulteries, Hosea loved her and pursued her. And in Hosea 2, God speaks to his people, and this is from the message starting in verse 14. And now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start all over again. I'm taking her back into the wilderness where we had our first date, and I'll court her. Verse 17. I'll wash her mouth out with soap and get rid of all the dirty false god names and not so much as a whisper of those names again. And verse 19. And then I'll marry you for good, forever. I'll marry you true and proper in love and tenderness. Yes, I'll marry you and neither leave you nor let you go. You'll know me, God, for who I really am. God longs for our wholehearted love, for our fidelity and our faithfulness. Those who made the the temple a marketplace thought, hmm, I'll take God and my portion too. And Jesus drove them away. Those who were stubborn and defensive and unwilling to recognize who he was, Jesus left them. But those who knew they needed him and those who recognized who he was and gave him exuberant praise... He welcomed them, and he healed them. So Lent is a season of the church year that causes us to pause. It's patterned after Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, and it's intended to be a time of reflection, of cleansing, of renewal. And Jesus is inviting us into the wilderness to court us, 
but he also wants to cleanse us. He wants to get rid of all those dirty, false God names we chase after. He wants us to turn from our other lovers, from the seductions of our culture and our lifestyles, from those things that hold us back from being all in for God. Bruce Hindmarsh is a professor up at Regent College, and he likened this to cleaning a window. Imagine that you and the person you love most in the world are separated by a wall that you can't get around. And there's a window in that wall, and it's the only place where you can see the face that you love most. And the problem is that window is covered with dirt and grime. How quickly, how energetically would you clean that window? Would it be an act of dreary moralism? Or would every exertion be lightened by the increasingly clear vision of your beloved? It's love that draws us. It's love that compels us to clean that window and to do whatever it takes to behold our beloved more clearly. But we often have conflicting motivations, don't we? It isn't always that simple. Ruth Haley Barton says it well. We long for more in our spiritual lives, that's for sure. But we're not always ready for the harrowing journey of suffering and death and burial and resurrection that any true spiritual journey entails. Kind of sounds like a journey to the cross. We want God as long as we can still have our successes too. We like the idea of being on a journey of faith, as long as it doesn't require too much faith. We dream of a promised land, but we don't want to leave anything behind. We want space for God, as long as it doesn't intrude too radically on our packed schedules and conflicting priorities. We want self-knowledge as long as it doesn't cut too close to the ego bone. And we desire to know and do God's will as long as it doesn't make us look foolish. We want love as long as we're not too inconvenienced. We'd like to buy the pearl of great price as long as we don't have to sell everything to have it. We wax eloquent about the paschal mystery, Christ's death and resurrection, one weekend a year, as long as we're not the ones doing the dying. We are like Gomer. We'll take what Hosea provides, but we don't want to give up our other lovers and what they might have to offer. We don't really want Jesus to come in and turn the tables upside down. I mean, that's so messy, so untidy, so uncomfortable. But he invites us to come to him and to be healed. Healed from our false illusions of who he is. Healed from our false illusions of who we are. Healed from our obsessions and our addictions and healed from the damage of the seductions to which we've succumbed. Lent is an invitation 
to journey to the cross with Jesus. Typically during Lent, people have fasted from something, or some choose to add something, to make a space for God to work in our lives. Some choose to fast things like coffee or chocolate or TV or social media. One year I gave up buying books. It helps to loosen our compulsions and our cravings. Some add things like Lent groups or a Lenten devotion or going for a walk each day in quiet prayer or committing to an act of service. The idea is simply to make room for Jesus, to move more deeply into our lives, to move more deeply, for us to move more deeply into his love, to clean the window, to cleanse the temple, to turn away from the things that seduce us. So I want to encourage you, each one of you, to consider how you can make space for God in the next weeks I encourage you to join Jesus on this journey to the cross. He's already taken it for you. Be willing to go where the journey takes you. This is a time to let Jesus do what he will do among us. So we can bear abundant, mature fruit for God and become a place of welcome and healing. Let's pray. Lord, this is a stern word of warning and judgment that those who ignore you or turn away or have the facade of leaves with no true fruit in their lives will be left alone and barren. But there is hope that those who come to you, who acknowledge you as king, worshiping you and living a life of fruitfulness will find healing and love. May that be true in our lives. May our hearts long for more of you. May we bear beautiful fruit for you. By the power of your grace and your love, we pray. Amen.